Welcome to Black Earth Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Atieno Osieyo. Black Earth is an interview podcast that's celebrating nature and the incredible Black women leaders in the environmental movement. In this episode, we meet with Hindu Umaru Ibrahim. Hindu is an indigenous environmental leader from the Mbororo peoples in the Sahel region of Africa. Hindu has spent the majority of her life organizing and advocating for indigenous leadership and knowledge in international environmental policy. In this episode, we explore the central role that African indigenous women play in earth care and the impacts of climate injustice on indigenous peoples around the world. We also discuss solutions and how we can support indigenous girls, women and communities to realize climate justice. Hi, thank you for having me today. It's really a great, great pleasure talking to all your audience. So uh, my name is Hindu Umaru Ibrahim. I am a Mbororo indigenous woman from Chad. So Chad is uh, one of the bigger country of Africa, but really in the center, in the uh, landlocked country. And uh, I come from a uh, Mbororo pastoralist communities who are uh, still nomadic 100% in one, some places and semi-nomadic in, in other places. And um, my people live across six countries, Chad, Cameroon, Niger, Nigeria, Central African Republic, and uh, Sudan, and now uh, with climate change, people move ev- over DRC Republic. And uh, my people used to be around all this land. Anyway, before colonization, it used to be our land. And then uh, after the decision of Berlin, so they just like cut it our countries in pieces and then divided our people. And when I say our peoples, that mean my own people because I got some cousin who get a nationality of Cameroon, other cousin from Central African Republic, other cousin in Niger, in Nigeria. So then I get born in Chad and then I ended up with the nationality of Chadian. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hindu. Hindu, how would you describe your relationship with nature? Well, uh, for me, the relationship with nature is not only a relationship, we are all nature. We are part of the nature. We don't need to create a relationship with the nature because we are nature. So all of us in this planet, doesn't matter that you are white, black, or you are in a, a developed country or developing countries, we depend from nature. We need air to breathe. We need water to drink. We need food to eat. And all that is part of the nature. And we are also one species of the nature among so many. So if like I got the questions how I can describe my relationship with the nature, I'm like, there is no relationship. As part of the nature, I have a duty vis-a-vis to the other species. So what we do in my people, in my communities, is how we can respect the little ant and how we can respect the bigger elephants how we can respect the powerful lions as how we can respect the weak bears who is flying over the space. So that's mean 
So we depend from the rainfall. When the rain is there, it can help grow up the pastures. Our cattle can eat. We can get a milk. We can eat it. We can get our economy ruling out of it. So that's how we describe our relationship with nature as part of it. We respect each other. We take only what we need. We give back to the nature and we live in harmony together. Thank you, Hindu. It really strikes me the way that you've, you articulate that, that you don't have a relationship with nature because you are nature. Um, and that's something that's come up several times in uh, my interviews with um, other environmental leaders in, in this podcast. Um, could you tell us more about where this, uh, this belief that you hold comes from? Is it something that you grew up with as a member of the Mbororo community, or is it something that has emerged as you have evolved as, yeah, as a person? So when we are growing up at the communities, we all know that nature is part of us and we are part of the nature. So it is the wisdom that passes from generation to generations, how you can respect and live in harmony among other species. I'll give you a concrete example. As coming from a nomadic pastoralist communities, you can have a kid of seven years old who can take a hundred of cattle, go grazing somewhere very far and take the cattle in a lake where there is lion who can come and drink, elephant who can come and drink, gazelle who can come and drink, and of course the cattle and then the little boy there who go to the water and drink. As we know at what time each species is coming to drink, so we know how we can respect who is true to pass. And as we know how each species is using those resources, we know also how we should use the resources. And they stay all the day outside with those animals. And they come back safe. And if like one day they know that a family of elephant or a family of lion are sick or something, the little kids of seven years old come back home and tell his families that, oh, today I saw something which is not normal. This family of elephant or this family of lions, maybe they are not normal. They got something. And they talk over this history in the families. So you grow up like this. So you know exactly how the rest are, of species are also very important for your survival and how you are important for their survival because you get connected each other. You know that you are belonging to this same environment and that you have to respect. So we are born with it, I can say. We know where we are coming from, where we are heading, as the species also knows. So it doesn't matter that I grow up between the city and my community. I know it because that's what I have as a legacy from my mom, from my grandma. And then they also get it as a legacy from their own, all the generations. And that's also what I'm 
telling to all the next generation that is coming, which kind of history they have to rely and how they have to respect and protect the rest of the species as they can respect and protect their own self. We depend from each other. They disappear, we disappear. Our culture disappear, our identity disappear. If we wanted to protect who we are, we should protect them also. As I hear you speak now, um, there's something that came out strongly for me is uh, this uh, connection between generations and how much uh, your your culture, your relationship, or your your presence and your being in nature um, depends on all generations coming together to transmit and pass on knowledge. Um, and I remember you watching a video of your TED talk, uh, which I absolutely loved. And uh, when I heard you say, my best app is my grandmother, that just filled me with so much joy and inspiration. But there's actually more to that than just being a, a quote or something fancy to say. So when you said my best app is my grandmother, could you tell us more about uh, what you meant by that in your TED talk? Sure. So when you grow up in the Western culture, you have the chance, I can say maybe you are lucky to see how the technology is developing very fast and then how you can use the technology and sometimes you use them forgetting that nature is the best technology ever. So, for example, in the Western world, everyone has his smartphone. When you wake up, the first thing that you do is checking the weather app, normal, to see if it's cold, to get extra cold, if it's hot, to have your sunglasses, what will be the weather, if it's raining, you to get your umbrella. So it's normal to get ready to go outside and you get a very valuable gadget that you can click on it and tell you. But imagine if you are at the community who do not even have access to the electricity and who cannot get access to those kind of gadgets to tell them the weather forecast as my people who are the nomadic. So you need to rely on something. If you are nomadic, you do not have a fixed home. So you have to go and stop in some places and build your home. So then you build it only for two, three days and you need to cope with all the weather surrounding you. So the best application ever for me is my grandma because she can just observe the birth migration, the cloud position. She can observe her own cattle, how they are lying down. She can observe the wind directions, the quality of the wind, all the air, the plants. And then she just predict the weather. She can tell you if it's going to rain in the next two hours. Or if the next rainy season after one year going to be predictable or not. So how she do that? For example, when the birds migrate because one season is ending, another one is starting. And when the birds are migrating at the same time, you have to look at also some trees, their flowers, their uh, uh, fruits. And at the same time, you have to look at also the wind. 
So we combine all the different knowledge from the astrological knowledge to the biological knowledge, and it's helped us predict the weather. So it is our best application because now the weather forecast in your phone can tell you it's going to rain. Surprisingly, it's sunny. You cannot get any SMS who can tell you, oh, sorry, I apologize because I predict, but it is uh, not sunny. It is raining or whatever. But we do not have a right to make this mistake. If you make the mistake, it's not going to rain and it's rain, all your stuff will be get wet and you will lose a month of your life. So we do not have any chance to make this mistake. That's why we are observing all the different species of the nature and we predict our weather. It's correctly giving us the right information. Even with the climate change impact, even with the loss of the biodiversity, we are adapting our traditional knowledge to our way of living because we rely on it. We have no other choice. We have no one who can come and tell us it's going to rain or it's going to be hot or flood. And then we have to adapt ourselves and make our survival as resilient as possible. So this is the best application ever for me. For me, it's one of the, the ways I've um, observed indigenous communities around the world, the way they conceptualize knowledge, which is, uh, you know, bringing astrology, um, physical science, language, culture, all of those things in, is make, makes up knowledge and understanding of the, the world, the universe, but also, you know, nature. And I really appreciate that because um, for me, uh, living in, uh, in Europe, uh, environmental science is very much focused on physical science and what can be observed and measured, but doesn't take into account all the other types of knowledge that can help people uh, understand, appreciate and respect nature and the fact that they are nature as well. So it's something that I've come to appreciate and honor and observe about the way I have seen various indigenous communities because there, there are many different types of indigenous peoples. They're not just one group of people, but it's a common theme that comes up when I get to understand um, how, they, how they view and live um, as nature. Um, I wanted to ask you... Uh, uh, the role of um, indigenous women in Africa in um, preserving and sharing uh, knowledge about nature. Uh, can you help us understand why they play such an important role in, in this regard and that, that how that can help us um, in our efforts to uh, uh, restore and heal nature? So... Indigenous women have a detailed knowledge because you have man knowledges who are more in the bigger repair. 
for example, man can tell you the different kind of the forest, what is inside the forest, as the other peoples are seeing is just like green trees surrounding or some various trees there. So the man can tell you if the trees are the medicinal trees, if they are sacred trees, if they are food trees, etc. And women can tell you the detailed knowledge about which kind of knowledge that is relevant to your health, to your food, etc. So women pass it the knowledge through their generation because when you grow up, you always, little boy or little girls in our communities, you sit with your mom and then she can just tell you like, oh, do that, don't do that. And then like, why you don't do that? Like, no, stop going outside under this tree at midday because it is not normal in our culture because you can get sick or whatever. So technically you say like, you do not understand, but of course there is some substance can, that can come out during the heat in the middle of the day or whatever. That can make you sick or that can kill you, etc. So then they just translate those knowledge from one generation to another one by educating them. So women as the educators, they are the teachers of all the generations through the different various knowledge, but they are the teachers also of the culture, of the identities. Me, I remember benefiting from sitting with my mom, with my aunties, my cousin, my grandma, we just like telling the history, but each history, each anecdote have a big benefit because we do not just tell the history and laugh and move without taking lesson from what is said. And this is very important because women are the best one who are storytelling. And then the storytelling who can give you a big sense of how you can use it for the next generation, for your own life. It's not the history that just like you can keep it in and does it when you live and it's fine. It will remind you when you are active in your uh, world in being adults or etc. So. For example, when they say like, oh, African women, you have a lot of uh, storytelling uh, for your kids. So may you just like tell us and then, then the storytelling is around all oh, these animals and meet with this one. And then he say this and he say that. And then people just uh, take it like as a joke and reading at the books. For us, it is not a joke. It is a reality is how they can pass the history to the kids to make them understand the importance of the nature, the importance of the culture, the importance of the identities. So they are the best one who know each generation, which kind of history that you have to tell them in order to understand the bigger challenge crisis that is surrounding them. So I think women have the big things to bring in our communities as the world's communities and indigenous women or African women have a lot to bring. It's not the issue of like, uh, let us make the equality or let us make agenda things or whatever. We already have that. In our culture, women can say it without that being in front. So that's what we say. Uh, in French, we say la nuit porte conseil. So like, uh, the night can make you reflect. So when the man, community leaders, elders, they sit, they discuss about the big challenge, 
and then they never get an agreement. They just stop the discussion. They say, you know what? Let us think about it overnight. When they get home, <laughs> there is no anyone who can come in them airing and say like, hey, listen, tomorrow morning is these things. So every man talked with his wife or talked with his mom about the secret discussion that they had among women, uh, among, among uh, man chief leaders. They say like, we had this discussion, then it has been very challenging. And then the women say like, well, I think you are off of this. You can do A, B, C, D in these discussions. And then they close the discussions. When they go back to the discussions with all the months, and then you found somebody who said like, I got an idea overnight. We can resolve this issue by saying this and this and that. Or another one said like, yes, I confirm. And at the end of the day, the little airing who are telling them the truth and the realities are the women who didn't attend those meetings, but who are taking the resolutions of the big decisions that man couldn't resolve it during the day. They did resolve it during the night. So they are the voices in the shadow, but they are the wisdom who can let the communities move forward anytime. They are the wisdom of the children who are passing them all the history, protecting them, building their future, but they are the wisdom of the rest of the society that are giving them all the solution that they want. So women voices in African culture and in indigenous culture are very important and respected in one or another way. It doesn't matter if the respect is put them in the light or in the shadow. I mean, following your work for the past few, free, I know you've been you've been actively involved in organizing indigenous communities since you were like sixteen, um, and you've done it at the community level, at the national level, um, internationally through climate policy, um, and really trying to ensure that um, indigenous communities are. Uh, empowered to be able to share their knowledge and their wisdom, to speak their voices and and really influence uh, climate policy and solutions that will help them build their own resilience to climate change. Um, can you share with us some of the, the challenges right now when it comes to climate change and nature loss that's particularly affecting um, indigenous communities in Africa and across the world? Yes, uh, actually, small corrections. I started since I was 12. The authorization, official authorization of my organization that I got, that was since I was 16. So uh, somebody put it that on 16 and I just like, you know, I'm like, it's fine. So 
I'm I, sorry about that. No, it's not. It's not you. But like, uh, yeah, people wanted to put like the big references based on the Western way of looking at things. And then I'm trying now to correct it. I'm like, yes, from the Western way, you say like the official paper where they are written. So it's 16. But no, the fight started since I was 12 at the primary school. And I started because of the climate change impact in my communities. So we got an impact from the difference environmental and social lives. Environmental, we got the rainy season that changed a lot. The rain come down more heavily with a lot of floods that flood all the crops and even the peoples in the cities. or the drought, where there is no enough run, and then of course no crops can grow up, little pastures and people fight each other to get access to the natural resources. So that extreme weather events become more frequent in all our society, in all our communities. And it is not only in Chad, but so many other indigenous communities. When you look at the Sapmi in the Arctic, when the glaciers are melting and also like the winters are becoming very difficult for them, the rangers have to dig very hard in order to get the pastures. Or when you get to the small islands and you found the indigenous communities, Facing, facing more and more the hurricanes that destroying their own villages. They cannot get enough fish. The coral are dying. The sea level are rising. Or you can go also to the Himalaya mountain when you see also the glaciers are melting. The communities have to move. So it is the same, the climate change impact from the fire on the tropical forest to all what we are experiencing are becoming more and more hard. And as indigenous peoples living and dependent from the nature, we are the front line of the climate change. We are the most impacted in the climate change. And yet we refuse to be a victim. We are not the victim. We become a victim because of the action or inaction of developed world. The action because they are digging and is still digging the blood of the earth, taking all the minerals, the natural resources, the oil outside, and that killing all of us because it's accelerating the global warming. Or because of inaction that they are not taking, they are not stopping the fossil fuel, they are not taking their responsibility to pay for the climate adaptation to pay the historical responsibility to the developed world and especially to the indigenous peoples who are getting impacted. So those action or inaction making indigenous peoples frontline more vulnerable to the climate change impact. But of course, indigenous peoples all together, we gather around the world. We fight within the climate change convention, the biodiversity convention, the desertification convention to show them that our solutions can lead the world to a carbon negative, can give them the solutions, but they have to trust us and we have to take the decision with them. Yet it's not happening. It's moving, yes, but very slowly, because if we look at just this week, the record of heat around the world, it's horrible. We have been alarming them since so many years. In countries like mine, in Chad, we have like more than 48 to 50 degrees Celsius. They was not acting because it is not their home. 
Now, when you look at Europe, US, and all the bigger countries, some of them facing 40 degrees Celsius or 48 degrees Celsius, and then the science is standing up and saying, like, the world is hitting the record. But the world hit the record since many decades ago, where people are dying because they do not have voice to talk or the voice are not considered. The Lake Chad, where I live from, dried up of 90% of his water. It used to be 25,000 kilometers square of the fresh water when my mother got born in 1960. And now the water is between two to 3,000 kilometers square, where you have more than 40 million people living depending from this water. It is alarming for our region. It is a big face of climate change, but people do not consider as urgent action to talk about it. But yes, today they are considering talking about it because they were hitting the record. So we need this equality. We need this justice because it is a climate injustice. Where it is touching you, you act. Where it is not touching you, it is other people. You just take them as a pity peoples. They have to understand one thing. Climate change do not have a visa, do, do not need a visa, do not have a frontiers. Climate change can hit everyone. Maybe not in the same time, differently, but it is a threat for the world. We need to put all our energy together as the world's communities, passing our differences. And the global north countries need to stop investing in the fossil fuel. They have to pay their responsibility to resilience for the global south, for the adaptation for the global south. They have to pay this money. They do have it. They have to stop all what they call development because it is over development that they are living and everything. If it is over, it will make you mad. Like alcohol. They can say it's good, but when you are overdrunk, you cannot control yourself. So overdevelopment can make them mad to do not control what is happening and they can be facing all the consequences. So they have to act and act for themselves and act for everyone right now because indigenous peoples are acting through the little that we have of traditional knowledge. Wow, thank you, Hindu. Thank you for sharing that. Many of our, of our listeners are very, uh, are very committed to action. They, they really are about um, doing everything that they can to, to address the climate injustice and really start to uh, repair and restore nature. Um, and I know that indigenous communities play a really central role in helping us to address what is happening in the world when it comes to uh, Mother Earth and all the associated injustices that come from that. Um, what are some of the things that you feel are most critical for our listeners to, to do or to support when it comes to um, supporting Indigenous communities in, in addressing climate injustice? 
So climate justice, it is also a human right justice. It is a gender justice. It is a intergenerational justice. It is a racial justice. When you look at around the world, you go to a developed world who are the most impacted are the people of color, or you can say migrant, or you can say, I don't know, communities who do not have the capacities because they are not living in the protected places. And when they hit hurricane or floods or whatever environmental crisis that are passing, it is not easy for them to rebuild back their life as quick as possible. It is a gender justice because when you look at all what is happening around the world, like the recent flood in Pakistan or the recent flood in Chad, Nigeria, Niger, the women who have children or who do not have are the most impacted because they lose everything and then it's not easy to act as a woman, man leave them behind. If it is flood or drought, the man used to go away to find for the solutions. They become internal migrants. They leave the women who can deal with the daily action every day. It is intergenerational injustice because the old communities creating this climate change by using the natural resources without thinking or caring about the next generations, what will be their life and then the next generation starting living in a very difficult life and very difficult way now. And it is also a human right and justice because those who are the most impacted do not have right to development, do not have right to water, right to lands, etc. So climate injustice have to end and people have to understand climate injustice, it is also inaction that they are not taking. They must include the human rights best approach. If the developed world say like we are a democratic nation, we are a human rights nation. So they must start by understanding what they are saying and by applying what they are saying. You cannot just like take a nice word and take it and say it there without implementing. Otherwise, you are not a human right nation. You are a right violating nation. So better that you just like shut up, say I'm not democratic, and then I will be moved forward to improve. So you cannot say it without implementing. That's really what needs to be happen as first step to the climate justice. For example, when the committee in Copenhagen to say they're going to give a hundred billions every year to the developed nations for the adaptations, they never reached the hundred billions from 2020 until this year. They say like, yes, we get reached the hundred billions for the years to give in to the countries. I was in the Paris during Macron event on Pact for Finance. They clapped about the hundred billions. And then African countries said like, wait a minute, 
the 100 billion was before that we reached this critical time of the climate change. Now we are beyond the 100 billions. And even the 100 billions that we are talking about, who from our very impacted countries that get opportunity to eat? Because they created a criteria who are not accessible at all to the nations that are impacted the most. Because the things that it is our money, we have to put all those criteria. And at the end of the day, other the peoples have to fight to get those or other they cannot get it anymore. So the climate injustice needs to be fixed now. Otherwise, they are not a justice for democratic nations at all. What advice would you give to other indigenous girls and women uh, in Africa who are living with the impacts of climate change in their communities? I think for the indigenous women and girls, I can tell them that you are already doing it. You are the force of the nature and you can do it again. Put all your effort to show how much you are acting for your people because you are doing it for your own people. You are not doing it for the other peoples. Don't accept being a victim because you are a solution. Maybe you do not see what you are doing, but it is helping the entire world to get into the solutions. Of course, you can fall down because you are human but stand up with a proudness and move forward. Don't look at who pull you back. Look at those who are taking you straight forward. Go move to show what you are and who you are. You are a woman because you are the mother of the nations. You are going to become a woman as little girls because you're already caring about your family, about your communities. And that gives you a strong power. Because you are the power of the nature, you can make it as indigenous women and indigenous girls of African nations. We are there, we are building up, we are building our nation and we will be building it for the entire world because we are not an egoistic woman. We are a collective fighters. So you are a warrior. Doesn't matter that you act too small or bigger, you can do it. And I'm so confident that indigenous women, indigenous girls are the solutions. We are the future. We are not the past. Well, thank you so much, Hindu. Um, I am so grateful for the time that you've given us today. And uh, there's so many things that have come up in our conversation. Uh, remembering that we are nature, uh, honoring the, the wisdom across generations, um, addressing climate injustice and uh, equity and finance, uh, 
Oh, there's so much that you've shared. <laughs> so uh, I just want to thank you for for your time today and um, really looking forward to yeah, supporting you going forward. How can our listeners uh, follow you or follow your work? Um, is there a, a website or sure, so social media? Everyone can uh, follow my Twitter. It's at Hindu Umar. Or, uh, of course, um, uh, you can follow also in the website that is in French. In, uh, fortunately, one of uh, another colonial men. Uh, but uh, you can support all what indigenous peoples are doing. This is the most important for all of us. And, uh, of course, support and support and support. We really would love you to support us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hindu. Thank you so much for joining us in today's conversation. We'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts. We are on Instagram, TikTok and LinkedIn at Black Earth Podcast. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, your communities. And you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Black Earth is a proudly independent podcast and we are on a mission to reconnect and heal humanity's relationship with nature. If you'd like to support us, we are on Patreon at Black Earth Podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.